his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ookla speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. US Q3 2023. Thank you for coming. Tonight's event will be live streamed on the Yak TV YouTube channel, so I'd like to welcome those tuning in from home as well. My name is Connor O'Grejack, and I'm the president of the Young Americans for Freedom chapter at the University of Buffalo. YAC is the first premier conservative club on campus that seeks to educate students on conservative ideals, individual freedoms, and promote civil discourse and debate. As a chapter, we are proud to host some of the largest names in the conservative movement right here on campus. Before I welcome tonight's guest, I would like to extend a heartfelt thank you to the Logan family, Young America's Foundation, the YAC board, and my fellow members. Despite unprecedented measures taken to suppress this event, including physical threats, petitions from faculty, and hundreds of torn flyers. I'm proud to say that our tireless efforts, dedication to standing firm in our beliefs, and never backing down have finally paid off. And I cannot thank you enough. Tonight's featured speaker is the celebrated host of the Michael Knowles Show at the Daily Wire and the book club at PragerU. He is also the author of best-selling book, Speechless. Without further ado, it is my honor to introduce Michael Knowles. Does anyone have a pen so I can write that down? <laughs> okay. 
that's not a word fit for a lady. That's not the way ladies should speak. And I know who you're talking about. My ladies should speak here tonight. <laughs>
Now, I am not quite sure how one could hear those words and conclude that I was calling to murder all of the transvestites. I suspect the people who came to that conclusion, they, they were probably listening in the way that, that that group of people was listening before, namely screaming so that you couldn't hear a word that I actually said. Because I clearly expressed a special concern for the good of these sexually confused people. Presumably, therefore, I would not be interested in murdering them. I referred to transgenderism, ism referring to a doctrine, a system, a set of beliefs. Unless there be any confusion, in the very same sentence, I defined that ism as an ideology and a preposterous one at that. There could have been no way for a reasonable person to interpret what I said as anything other than an attack on an idea. When one calls to eradicate communism or capitalism, one is not thereby calling to murder all of the communists or the capitalists. When one calls to eradicate poverty, one is not calling to murder the poor. When one calls to eradicate cancer, one is not suggesting that we ought to murder the cancer patients. So how did these liberal news editors come up with their headline that I wanted to commit a genocide of transgender people? The only answer that I can come up with is that they were lying. I, I, I don't think, I, I don't want to ascribe to malice that which is explained by ignorance and stupidity, but I think they had to be lying. I think they knew what they said, what I said rather. I think they understood the basic meaning of words. I think they knew that what I said was entirely reasonable to all normal people, but they had a story that they wanted to write. And so they just made up other words and then pretended that I said them and then accused me of genocide. Now the good news, is that these news editors uh, very quickly realized they had gone too far, that the headlines were libelous. I suspect their legal departments called them and said, change the headlines before you get sued into oblivion. Because even though libel law in the United States is a very high threshold, those outlets crossed that line. So they caved and they changed the headline. Great. But then, no sooner had the fake news changed their headlines and admitted their lies, then a sitting member of Congress from this very state, Congressman Jamal Bowman, he accused me of genocide too. He went even further than the fake news outlets. Congressman Bowman called me, quote, a Nazi hell-bent on keeping only white men alive and in power. I don't think I mentioned race once in my speech. Certainly didn't refer to any Germans from the 1930s. And as a descendant of the Italian people, I am only marginally white. You know, the, the Italians, we've always occupied a kind of ethnically ambiguous position. Nevertheless, according to Congressman Jamal Bowman, I'm a Nazi hell-bent on keeping white men in power. All because I said, boys can't be girls and girls can't be boys. All of that I mentioned to say, I think I struck a nerve. Sometimes the squishy conservatives, they want to throw up their hands in the face of gender ideology. They say, who cares? Who cares about the pronouns and the bathrooms and the sports teams? Well, I think this past week of historic defamation from some of the most powerful interests in the country shows the left cares. The left cares a lot because this gender ideology is about a lot more than strange pronouns and eccentric men with a fetish for putting on miniskirts. It goes a lot deeper. The present fight over transgenderism is the culmination of half a century of gender ideologues winning victory after victory 
as hapless conservatives do little more than huff and puff and ultimately embrace the views of our opponents. That is why my CPAC speech caused such a stir. The liberals believed they had already won the battle over transgenderism. Sure, conservatives might still argue over which age is appropriate to trans the kids. The liberals want to trans the kids at age five. The conservatives think we should wait till eight to trans the kids. But even many self-styled conservatives today argue that anyone over the age of 18 has some sort of right to identify as the opposite sex. That's a very new idea. It's easy to forget because politics moves so quickly. But until about 2015, virtually nobody believed that. Virtually nobody believed in transgenderism. Transgenderism, the belief that men can secretly be women and vice versa, that was a punchline. That did not exist as a matter of public life until about eight years ago, when Barack Obama injected the ideology into the military policy and liberals in North Carolina passed their first bathroom ordinance inviting men into the women's bathroom. Before that time, pretty much nobody, left, right, or center, believed that men had the right to waltz into the ladies' room, or into the women's locker room, or to compete against women in women's sports. Virtually no one, left, right, or center, seriously argued that men had some right to change their birth certificates to pretend to be the opposite sex. Now, not only do the liberals believe that such a right exists, but even many conservatives believe it as well. And they have to believe it. They have to believe it if they accept the left's previous victory in the culture war, the redefinition of marriage to include same-sex unions. The illogic, or illogic rather, of so-called gay marriage is that men and women are basically the same, that the union of two men and the union of two women is the same as the union of a man and a woman. A little over a decade ago, regardless of what you think about that issue, a little over a decade ago, virtually no one, left, right, or center, believed that. Both Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama campaigned for president, arguing that marriage is a sacred bond between a man and a woman. Wasn't that long ago. Now, even many conservatives accept so-called gay marriage. And they have to, they have to accept gay marriage, if they accept the illogic of the sexual revolution, which held that all sexual relations are fine and dandy so long as they're consensual. After the sexual revolution, the only test for sexual ethics became, if it feels good, do it. For most of American history, nobody believed that. For most of American history, there were all sorts of laws against certain sexual behaviors. There were famously laws against sodomy, but there were lots of other laws as well. Laws against fornication, laws against adultery, laws against plenty of other destructive sexual behaviors. Those laws were on the books as recently as 2003, when liberals on the Supreme Court discovered in the Constitution some sort of right to all of those things. Not quite sure where they found it. I think it, it may have been written in invisible ink by James Madison. It was a little trick to future generations. But in any event, the Supreme Court says it's all there. Now, even many conservatives defend the alleged right to these sorts of behaviors, the right to fornication. And they have to believe in such rights if they accept the illogic of feminism, which is the topic that we are here to discuss. Feminism, which sits at the origin of the gender debate, because it was the feminists 
who first insisted that men and women are pretty much exactly the same. It wasn't the transvestites, it wasn't the homosexuals, it was the feminists. The feminists who said, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. The feminists who burned their bras, who loosened divorce laws, who weakened the family as the fundamental political institution. Sure, conservatives opposed them for a time, but now many, if not most conservatives, consider themselves to be, to some degree, feminists. But they should not. They should not because feminism has made everybody miserable, especially women. The sometime presidential candidate, Pat Robertson, once described feminism as, quote, a socialist, anti-family political movement that encourages women to leave their husbands, kill their children, practice witchcraft, destroy capitalism, and become lesbians. It's a little harsh. It's a, it's a little harsh, but when you really think about it, it, when you try to put your finger on what exactly you got wrong, it's a little tougher to do that. In any case, it is notoriously difficult to measure happiness. But survey after survey has suggested that feminism has not only not made women any happier, but it's actually made them much more miserable than they were. The most prominent among these surveys comes from 2009, came out of Wharton, it was published in the American Economic Journal. The study is called The Paradox of Declining Female Happiness. The researchers found that despite alleged objective improvements to the lives of women as a result of feminism since the 70s, women's subjective well-being had declined absolutely and relative to men. Now, I generally consider social science and statistics more broadly to be total bunk, but I am willing to cite those statistics when they back up my argument. And in this case, the science is clear. Feminism has made women miserable. The misery-inducing effects of feminism are not a new discovery. In fact, they have always been a feature of the feminist movement. As radical feminist Carol Hainish explained in her influential 1970 essay, The Personal is Political, the very point of feminism in the mid-20th century was to make happy women less happy. Feminist groups such as the New York Radical Women organized regular gab fests for ladies to meet and complain about their bourgeois lives over apple pie and ice cream. This framework gave the feminist's opponents the impression that this ritual constituted something closer to group therapy than to politics. Hainish did not dispute the therapeutic aspect of these, uh, I call them wine and cheese soirees. Rather, she observed, quite rightly, that, quote, these analytical sessions are a form of political action. Hainish saw that, quote, one of the first things we discover in these groups is that personal problems are political problems. Individuals, she believed, could not fix systemic injustice. So women, therefore, needed to organize politically to solve their personal problems. Gender ideologues have maintained that tradition of weaponizing therapy for political ends. They prattle on and on about mental health, the importance of mental health, even as they valorize and encourage mental illness. They rant about the evils of conversion therapy, by which they mean various talk therapy techniques that seek to dispel confused people of their delusions, even as they undertake their own far more aggressive form of conversion therapy, conversion therapy that endeavors to convert boys to girls and girls to boys. These gender ideologues understand that all therapy is conversion therapy. 
all therapy endeavors to transform minds and behavior. So they stigmatize and outlaw therapeutic practices that seek to turn patients' minds away from delusion and toward the truth. At the same time, they mandate therapy that encourages and entrenches that delusion. Modern gender ideologues do this because they recognize that the feminists, though wrong on human nature and most things, were right on strategy and tactics. Therapy is an effective form of political organizing because the personal is, in fact, political. The feminist Kathy Sarachild recalled the moment she first experienced this political phenomenon. A woman in her group brought up the notion of raising consciousness. She said, I've only begun thinking about women as an oppressed group, and each day I'm learning more about it. My consciousness gets higher. Wow, man. The woman in the group had never considered herself oppressed. Feminists put that notion in her head, and the more meetings she attended, the more miserable she discovered she was. An intensifying misery that she celebrated as an awakening from the slumber of her oppressive serenity. The term consciousness raising refers to the Marxist concept of false consciousness, which Frederick Engels coined in 1893. The neo-Marxists of the 20th century, people like Antonio Gramsci, Herbert Marcuse, and other leftist intellectuals, they relied on the concept to explain why the allegedly oppressed masses seemed so much happier than all the theorists thought they ought to be. The radicals, they contended, understood the little guy better than he understood himself, and they intended to convince him, or her in the case of the feminists, of her own view. Because they understand that the personal is political, the feminists also understood the power and importance of manipulating language, as nothing can be more personal than the words that form one's thoughts and speech. This is the origin of political correctness, which we now call wokeness, a phenomenon that has for decades been embraced by pretty much all of the political left, but which originated with the feminists, who took their cues from the communists, as Hainish herself admitted. This is also why today's gender ideologues focus so much time and energy on enforcing their new jargon, making us all use preposterous terms such as trans woman or cisgender and all those incorrect pronouns. As the feminist Deborah Cameron has observed, meaning works by contrast. The words you choose acquire force from an implicit comparison with the ones you could have chosen but did not. That is to say, quote, by coining alternatives to traditional usage, the radicals have effectively politicized all the terms. The political success of this manipulation of language is not merely that we now feel cultural pressure, sometimes outright coercion, to refer to some men as she. The success of the gender ideologue strategy is that we even have to think about it at all. The fact that our society even pauses to take seriously this ridiculous ideology represents a political victory for the radicals, who at, at, at the very least have unsettled our traditional culture if they have not quite yet firmly established their own program to replace it. Unfortunately, many conservatives have responded to this semantic engineering by dismissing it or by retreating to stale platitudes about a neutral or depoliticized world. Instead, we ought to admit that the feminists and now the transgenderists 
have a point. They have recognized that traditional language and behavior propped up a traditional moral standard, one that the radicals have largely succeeded at overthrowing. The conservatives have adopted a live and let live, anything goes attitude to even these fundamental questions. But such an attitude can only ever result in defeat because there can be no neutral position or a conciliatory middle ground on binary questions such as, do women exist as a distinct, real, natural category, or do they not? Either they do or they don't. If they do, if women are real and men cannot become them, then transgenderism cannot be indulged in public life. If transgenderism must be indulged in public life, as some of those people yelling earlier would have us believe, then women cannot be treated as a distinct, real, natural category with the specific rights and spaces that they currently, or at least recently, enjoy. Societies can make allowances for dissent and eccentricity, but even the most tolerant, pluralistic society in the world must insist upon agreement on some basic things. Agreement, at the very least, on the meaning of words, or else its citizens will be unable to communicate, let alone govern themselves. Even the most tolerant, pluralistic society in the world cannot violate the law of non-contradiction. Every society must hold certain things to be true, and in so doing, must necessarily hold the opposite to be false. The gender ideologues have been particularly militant about exploiting the courts and exploiting the unaccountable executive agencies to enshrine their delusions into law. They have done this because their beliefs are particularly absurd and therefore rejected by normal people when those normal people are given a choice. You, you've seen this throughout the history, from feminism to the sexual revolution to the redefinition of marriage all the way up to transgenderism. When people have a choice to vote, generally speaking, they reject the program. So the radicals have to go another way through the courts and the bureaucracy. Most people understand that men and women are different. Most people consider those differences to be among the joys of life. So in order for the gender ideologues to establish their view in public life, they recognize that the people cannot be given a choice. Simone de Beauvoir, one of the most influential feminists of the 20th century and infamously the strumpet of Jean-Paul Sartre, attempted to explain this fact to Betty Friedan, another feminist whose book, The Feminine Mystique, kicked off second wave feminism in America. Beauvoir declared, quote, no woman should be authorized to stay at home to raise her children. Society should be totally different. Women should not have that choice precisely because if there is such a choice, too many women will take that one. Lest Friedan not grasp her point, Beauvoir drove it home. She said, it is a way of forcing women in a certain direction. Forcing women, we're seeing a lot of that today. Friedan objected, she said, that Americans valued their freedom and tradition too much to tell every woman that she must put her child in a childcare center. Beauvoir did not care. Beauvoir said, quote, as long as the family and the myth of the family and the myth of maternity and the maternal instinct are not destroyed, women will still be oppressed. Women, in other words, had to be forced to be free against their will. This was the same point made by Herbert Marcuse, considered the father of the new left in the 60s, who observed that a tolerant society cannot tolerate 
intolerance. Conservatives have reflexively refuted these kinds of arguments, but both Beauvoir and Marcuse had a point. Every society, every human thing, freedom itself cannot exist without limits or else they will undo themselves. The question before us is not how free our society ought to be, but rather what will delineate the limits of freedom. Will women be free to have their own rights and spaces? Or will sexually confused men be free to use the bathroom of their choice? To use just one illustrative example. You cannot simultaneously have both of those things. Leftist radicals have concentrated their focus on sex because sex is the fundamental distinction within man. Other differences, race, height, weight, all pale in comparison to sex which rests at the basis of human self-understanding. We see this in Gilgamesh, we see this in the Greek myths, we see this in the book of Genesis. The dismantling of our sexual self-understanding promises to liberate us indeed, as the ideologues insist, but it will not liberate us from any unjust oppression. The denial of sexual reality can only liberate us from our own human nature. Such a liberation would, at least in our self-understanding, eradicate humanity itself. A sensationalist newspaper editor might even, with some justice, call such a plan genocidal. Thank you very much. Karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ookla speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023. Celebrate and save at Ashley's Anniversary Sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep Mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.